the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation here at this edition of Lifeline. Our visit with Lisa Sharon Harper. Her new book, by the way, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly published by Waterbrook and Multnomah Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Is part of the issue here, Sharon, the fact that perhaps in our quest to understand reconciliation between creation, creator, and seeing the the need or, or comprehending the transformative power of salvation, that it hasn't gone far enough. And by that I mean um, salvation is the beginning point. Then there is this matter of sanctification. So we recognize sin, the impact of sin. We then, through the power of Christ's blood, become saved. That salvation then takes us to that long-term process in preparation of moving from um, the kingdom here on earth to the the kingdom up in heaven with the big capital K. And that, of course, is called this matter of sanctification. I would imagine that if if mankind were really truly embracing sanctification and not just the concept of fire insurance, that the changing of our heart in relationship to God would also change our heart in relationship to each other. And therefore, the turmoil that we're seeing, even right now as we speak, would, would perhaps look very differently, wouldn't it? I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell you a story. I was, I was writing Genesis, the uh, chapter 2 of the book, on a glimpse of Shalom, and I was writing and, and researching, actually, Genesis 1. And some, I had this huge aha moment that led me really to a time of worship as I was writing, and actually weeping. I was weeping and worshiping, because I realized that uh, many scholars now believe that they understand that Genesis as a book was actually written by several different sets of authors, that um, one of those sets of authors was a, was a company of priests. These priests were leaving. They were exiting the Babylonian exile. As such, that, you know, so I've heard that. I've heard that term before. About, you know, they were exiled. Okay, they didn't get to live where they wanted to live. But it's much more than that. They went through war. Sons died. Mothers died, husbands, brothers died. Then they were taken away from their land, made to live in Babylon, in a place that was not their own. In that land, they were taught the worldview of the Babylonians. The Babylonians told them that they were created to be slaves. That was the Babylonian worldview. All humanity was created to be enslaved by the gods, slaves to the gods. They were also told that they were not made in the image of God, only the royalty was made in the image of God. So when I was studying Genesis 1, and I get to the, uh, to the beginning of day 6, and they say that these priests write, and God said, let all humankind be made in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth, I, I, it hit me, I was like, this is revolutionary. 
for them because they had just spent 70 years in oppression. And then it hit me, wait a minute, I've never heard that the writers of Genesis 1, not 2, but Genesis 1, they were coming out of an oppressed context. They were, they were, they were writing in the context of thinking through and trying to figure out how do they see their own creation story in light of what they've been told about who they are by their oppressors. And I think that that's actually really, truly one of the biggest issues, Craig, is that when we study the Scripture, when we look at and try to put together theologies that work for us, we are not doing it from the same social location, from the same uh, uh, experience as those who wrote the Scripture in the first place. So what we tend to do is we tend to divorce it from its context, and then you know we jump to application and jump to interpretation before we even understand what the original writers might have been thinking in the first sure, place. Sure, and that's, that's the simplest definition of proof texting. Exactly. Uh, come up with a conclusion, and then go find a piece of Scripture that's going to support your conclusion. <laughs> exactly. And, and check this out, Craig. I mean, imagine the power of, of these people having been enslaved for 70 years, turning around and saying, God said, let all humanity have dominion. And that word dominion, it's been really misunderstood. It actually means stewardship. It means, in fact, in Genesis 2, you have picture of dominion that is the till and keep when the humans are placed in the garden and said till and keep this. That, those words till and keep mean serve and protect. So dominion, to exercise dominion, is to serve and protect. And all humanity has been given that, 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 that call and that capacity by God. But the problem for us is that we live in a world where we have laws and systems and structures that have told us a lie. So the issue here, then, is not just a matter of a distorted view of how we see ourselves, right. uh, or, or others, rather, but also how we see ourselves. Right. That's exactly right. We, 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 have, we have not understood that God cares about how we exercise power here on earth and how we interact with each other in relationship to power. Because I think that one of the, the key, the, the, the big question that they were trying to ask in Genesis 1 was after having been oppressed for 70 years, how now shall we rule as we enter into the new rule in the temple? And so the question of the image of God is key then, because there's some implications there. All humanity is made in the image of God, so everybody is a representative figure of God. Everybody is called with the capacity to exercise dominion. And if we govern in a way that squashes the capacity of any individual or people group to exercise dominion, then we are also squashing the image of God on earth. Well, not only that, but we're also um, denigrating the way they see God because their perception is that God thinks less of them. That All of a sudden we've set up second and third class citizens and now all of a sudden there's an elite that's uh, going to get the bigger mansions in heaven and uh, then there's the second and third class citizens that uh, are not so. And all of a sudden then I think that that diminished viewpoint of of ourself is a natural flow out of a, a taken out of context understanding of how God sees us. Yes, and you know, think of it this way also. When you look at the beginning of Luke, Luke 1, Luke actually sets it up. Luke says, you know, in the days of Herod, in the days of King Herod. Well, that's significant. He's setting up the context. The context is the context of empire. 
it's the context of an oppressed people. It's the context of, of a very corrupt king um, uh, or proxy king for Caesar. And it's, a, it's the uh, context of, of the Roman Empire, which had just um, done 2,000 uh, uh, crucifixions and 500 every day after that, just a few years before this, the, right, the, the period when this text place takes place. So that's the context that Luke is setting up in the beginning. It's actually, and then Jesus is born. And in and, and Mark, we see Jesus say, repent and believe the, ki- the, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom, believe the gospel, believe the good news. I believe that when Jesus came, what he was doing was he was confronting the kingdoms of men that crushed the image of God. And Jesus' work was to create um, flourishing in the image of God, in the people, starting with the Jews and working his way out. And that flourishing requires that we have relationship with God. But it also it, it requires relationship with each other that, that blesses and does not curse the image of God in each other. And we certainly know that it's possible. I mean, if you look at the ragtag group of the 12 that he had around him, I mean, there's plenty of, of cause uh, for, for none of the individuals to really get along, particularly when you consider the fact that you've got multiple layers of multiple classes of individuals. You've got tax collectors, and you have physicians, and you have thinkers, and you have fishermen. So you've got everything from the blue-collar worker to the white-collar worker to those that are high up in government to those that uh, eschew anything involving government, thinking it's just a dirty place to be, to be. And yet you manage to find all of these men coming together in absolute harmony around the central figure of Jesus Christ himself. So we know that the sense of reconciliation on the horizontal plane is modeled successfully so. Uh, sure, I'm sure they had their moments. I mean, we, we certainly even see evidence, evidence of that in Scripture. But overall, the the capacity to see reconciliation uh, and, and, and balanced relationship take place along the horizontal is modeled in the apostles. And so why not then superimpose um, that paradigm on where we're at to get today. We'll talk about that when we come back after a brief timeout. We're visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper. The book is called A Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. And we're going to dig down a bit deeper into the application of the power of the gospel and its influence on things such as the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, uh, all of significant um, changes that took place in American society 40 years ago now, and what seems to be a troubling absent absence of that impact today, and whether or not this is in part uh, can, can better explain the challenges that we're facing and what the road out may be. We'll get to that part of the conversation as Lifeline continues after this. <laughs> And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. Lisa Sharon Harper with us. The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Sharon, you've got a lot of expertise in this arena. Uh, Listeners may not know that one time you served as a ministry director of a racial reconciliation uh, aspect of a ministry in greater Los Angeles, and and you've touched on a little bit of that um, in our conversation today. But I have to wonder... There seems to be a big distinction between what we're seeing happening in our country today 
the movement afoot to try and, and get it addressed at, at multiple layers. And the movement that we saw leading the charge, so to speak, back in the 50s and 60s, and that was the church was absolutely forefront. Everybody thinks of or maybe has learned in school about Dr. Martin Luther King. They forget that he is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and that it was the church that was largely the spearhead of that movement that eventually brought about things like the end of Jim Crow laws down in the southern states and the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. I'm just wondering if in this current battle enjoined as we talk about uh, police departments, what's happening uh, with the minority communities and whatnot in relationship to uh, community policing, if, if maybe the one thing that seems to be absent from the forefront of this, and that is the church. Well, let me just say the church is not absent. The church, there are many people actually who are deeply, deeply committed leaders in the church who are very much uh, pastoring and chaplaining the movement right now. But let's take a step back, and I just want to um, share how all of this is all connected. Um, and, and it's funny because I kind of have to go back to, to the Roman times, to, to Plato. Plato was the first person in Western civilization that I could find that actually said the word race and said it, um, in terms of defining how race would operate within the context of a society. When he wrote The Republic in 360 B.C., and in The Republic 360 B.C., what he said was, different humans are made of different races, and those races are determined by the metals that the human is made out of. There are gold people, silver people, copper and iron people. Each of those different sets of people actually serve the, the Republic in a different way. So then flash forward to about 1453 A.D., and you get the Pope at that point um, putting forward the Doctrine of Discovery. So race, we know, um, uh, according to Plato, was supposed to define how society worked, how you structure society at what its most basic core. Then the Pope actually decides that if so, an explorer comes to him and says, "Yo, yo, yo, Pope! You know, I'm going to go exploring, and I need your blessing." And the Pope says, "I got you, got my blessing." But even I'll one up you if you come across some land that doesn't have a lot of concrete and doesn't have a lot of stone. Go ahead and claim it for the kingdom. Go ahead and claim it for the throne, because that means they're not civilized, and that means they don't have a right to actually exercise dominion on that land. So. Where we get that, so what that does is it starts to create a bifurcation in those who are fully made in the image of God and those who are not. And that's the beginning of, of the religious um, uh, uh, a nod to the construct of race. Then throughout American history, you, well, you have Linnaeus, the botanist, who puts together a, a literal taxonomy of human value with white Europeans on the, on the top, and then uh, Asians, and then um, red, he called them red um, Americanus, the Native Americans, and then black um, Africanus on the bottom. And that is the, that's when we start to see different races um, in different ways. And then we start to codify those races into different stations of American society around the 1660s, 1680s, all the way up to the Three-Fifths Compromise, that said, legally speaking, black people are only three-fifths of a human being. 
Then, in 1790, we declared with the Immigration Act of 1790 that only white people would be able to exercise dominion in America, and that's when we said they would be the only ones who could become naturalized citizens. So from that point forward, we have had a struggle in America on this land of people who are oppressed struggling to have the full image of God, the full call, the full capacity that God created with them with to exercise dominion, realized and protected by law. That was the struggle of the civil rights movement. And of course, the irony is you read the Declaration of Independence and that preamble right, right. codifies that we hold these truths to be self-evident. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that it doesn't say we, we have determined, we have established, we have decided. No, it says we hold. That gives right. credence to the notion that these truths are not truths that we created ourselves, but rather we're acknowledging have been established by some other entity, and certainly from a biblical perspective, I think we would say that that comes from God. And yet, even from then, we have managed to, you know, make the the bold pronouncement and statement and then run in the opposite direction ever since. Yes, that's exactly right. And so what you get is you get the Civil War where people literally had to die and bleed so that some could actually have in the image of God in them realized and cultivated and protected. And then you get Jim Crow that pushed that back, and then you get the civil rights movement that, that again, fought to have the image of God protected, realized, and cultivated in, in the same people and others who were then being oppressed. Now, the, the difference between the civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter movement or the current movement for the black, for a, a black struggle is that the civil rights movement was fighting specifically a very specific thing called segregation in the South. And that very specific thing, it hit the entire cross-section of the black community. I mean, it hit Grandmom, it hit Bebe, it hit, it hit Uncle Joe, everybody. And what's the best institution, then, to address something that hits across the entire cross-section of society? It is the church. But the thing is, today... The people who were experiencing the brunt, the, the, the sharpest point of the, of the spear in terms of um, today's uh, uh, injustice with regard to mass incarceration and police brutality, the people who are experiencing it the most are the young people. They're the folks in the streets, and they're not churched. And so, of course, the movement would rise up from that space. And, of course, they would lead it because they understand the injustice the most because they're the ones experiencing it. So it's really the job, it's the role of the church to then come alongside, to add the moral heft of our moral authority, and to stand with them and to say, yes, we are only calling on the image of God to be fully honored in every single human being, including Michael Brown, including Tamir Rice, including Eric Garner, including... Uh, Philando Castile, including Alton Sterling, and the list goes on. You know, the sad thing is that you look at the impact uh, of illicit drug use in America and, and all the crime and everything that attends to that and the destruction of marriages and lives and relationships. And yet, as you point out, the impact, it's kind of a twofold one. It's sort of a, a, a double whammy in that if you are doing cocaine in its powdered form, you're likely right. somebody who has a bank, a bank account or a contact list strong enough 
that you're going to be able to get out of it. You're going to have slap on the wrist. The judge is going to say, okay, 90 days probation and uh, write a big check to some foundation and, and uh, we'll, we'll consider it one and done. And yet, if you are in a minority class that doesn't use the powdered form but uses the crack cocaine form, oh, all of a sudden now you've got to do 90 years in jail. That's exactly right. And, I mean, and more than that, we've actually, now it's actually been proven that when Nixon declared the war on drugs back in, 19, in the early 1970s, I believe it was 1972, he said, we're going to do a war on drugs. Well, now we actually have him on tape saying that this was actually, that, that was a dog whistle, that was buzzword, that was a way post-Civil Rights Act to control and confine black, black communities. Because if they really were going to have a war on drugs, then they would have actually gone down into the South and they would have they would have focused on um, on southern women because southern women actually had the highest rates of drug abuse all the way from antebellum the antebellum south up to up to present because of the way that they had to suffer through the powerlessness that they experienced watching their husbands and and their brothers go and um, and well let's just say it and and rape their quote-unquote property, black women and men, quite honestly, um, through on, on slave plantations. And so those women anesthetized themselves by, by drugging themselves. But, of course, that's not where we focused. Instead, they focused policing on black communities. And whenever you focus policing anywhere, that's where that's going to be the bulk of who you get. Well, even we see the, the impact of things like uh, Johnson's Great Society that created a welfare state that's that's managed to have the same negative impact that while on the surface, oh, it sounds great. We've got, we got a war on poverty and we've got a war on drugs. And they don't realize in every war there are casualties and there's also friendly fire that ends up taking out the wrong people. The very people that you're supposed to be protecting and supposed to be on the friendly side end up becoming victims as well. A fascinating read, and I sure appreciate the time, Lisa, from you to uh, share with us some of your thoughts and insights, and again, more found inside the pages of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly released by Multnomah Press, and again, you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Our thanks to Lisa Sharon Harper for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a topic that we've discussed before. Uh, some, I think, troubling statistics that ought to catch the attention of all of us within the organized church in America. And that is surveys. They've been done by a variety of groups. Probably the most recent, most reliable, in my opinion, is that done by uh, George Barna and his organization that finds that an alarming percentage of young people who um, grow up in church, attending Sunday school, they've been baptized there, they've uh, been active in children's church all through their young adult years, and then they reach their later teens, high school, largely collegiate level, and it seems that once they graduate from high school and move into college, they move into the dorms and out of the pews. And the question is why? What's going on in the lives of young people today where they feel perhaps that the church is not adequately addressing their needs? Well, a new book has been written that helps to address this very issue. 
that takes a look at some key strategies that's not necessarily, you know, uh, fancy entertainment programs, things of that sort, but rather an attempt to sort of um, take a look at the church and most specifically how we can do a better job at not only keeping young people in the church, but allowing church and most importantly Christianity at the core to be relevant in their lives. Joining me now is one of the co-authors of a new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, in addition to being co-author, is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Fuller Youth Institute. He is, by the way, a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and has also served as a ministry director with Youth for Christ and also with YWAM. And Jake, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Hey, thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. When we uh, talk about solutions, of course, it it helps to get a bit of a handle on ascertaining what the problem is. Uh, You know, everything from Vacation Bible School, Children's Choir, Youth Church, all of this. Um, Youth have always been an important component within the church, and I've also seen studies to suggest that uh, there's a greater likelihood of people continuing um, in their faith for the entire length of their life, um, the younger that they make that decision or commitment to Christ. So we know that youth outreach and ministry is critically important, and yet in recent years there has been this trend, this trend of young people reaching a certain age and saying, okay, I'm no longer compelled to go by my parents, I no longer feel compelled, and they're done. Why? Yeah, exactly, Craig. In many ways, as you said, it's it's oftentimes, unfortunately, into the college dorm and out of the pews. And as you cited George Barna, the research from their organization often points to the fact that 40, 50 percent of those young people who grow up in the church end up drifting from God and the faith after they graduate from high school. Um, there's a lot of other negative statistics we could look at uh, regarding the church and where the church is at. Pew Research had released uh, some results recently where 78% of the U.S. adult population used to identify as Christian. Now that's 71%. We could look at other negative statistics like uh, 18 to 29-year-olds make up 20% of the U.S. population, but they actually make up only 10% of U.S. churchgoers. Uh, so as you indicated, lots of bad news. There's, there's a lot that we could point to of what's not working. But that's where we're so excited about this new research in the book, Growing Young, because we decided, what if we looked past the bad news? What if we looked beyond the problems and the struggles? And what if we actually studied churches that are thriving in their ministry to teenagers and young adults? And in doing so, um, and you've looked at churches across across the country, across denominational lines, you've looked at uh, churches that were mixed, churches that were uh, predominantly minority, churches that were predominantly white. Any trends that you see, any commonality with those churches that seem to be doing the quote-unquote better job at keeping or retaining young people? Yeah, very much. And before I mention a couple of those, one of the things I, I do want to mention were some of our surprises of what we thought we might find as a commonality that we, in fact, didn't find. So as we began the study, we wondered if we might find that churches that are large would be more effective with millennials, with teenagers and young adults, or and maybe it's churches that have a big budget, or it's churches that have been recently planted, or it's churches that have just this off-the-charts cool quotient or 
uh, they, you know, their worship is like a rock concert, or they've got a laser light show and fog machines, or a hip, cool young pastor. And we can with confidence say from the churches that we've studied, uh, it was not about any of those single things that led to effectiveness with young people. Interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this, and I mentioned this in my introductory remarks that we used to do, historically a good job is the church in providing uh, places for young people. But I wonder if there's a degree to which maybe that has backfired on us. And I I pose that question because um, one of the things certainly, and if we compare, for example, young people that get involved in gangs— yeah. Uh, typically, what do we see? We see young people coming from broken homes, uh, single-parent families, divorced families. We see young people who largely will get involved in gangs because there's not only a sense of community there and a sense of power, but a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling like you're, in a, in a way, in a surrogate family. And I wonder if we have come to perhaps, in this day and age, made a mistake by putting so much emphasis on in a sense, isolating young people because it's children's church, it's youth ministry, it's young people's outreach, that somehow we want them separate and apart from what the rest of the adults do, that in a sense, have we, rather than embracing them so that they get a sense of being in in that greater community, rather isolated them? Yeah, Craig, I think you're very much on to something that in many ways lines up with our research. Uh. So what, what we've landed on Uh, as kind of, in a nutshell, our study, we've landed on six core commitments that we think are essential for the whole church. And I say whole church because not just the children's church, not just the youth ministry, not just an independent young adult ministry. These are six core commitments that are vital for the whole church culture to buy into. And uh, one of those six, in fact, is something very close to what you mentioned We've come to call it that these churches prioritize young people and their families everywhere. So they're prioritized in every area of the church. And while that sounds uh, intuitive in some ways, or even obvious, what church would say we don't prioritize a younger generation? We found that there's often a strong difference between uh, the rhetoric or the language churches use, perhaps their intentions to prioritize young people, and uh, what it actually looks like to prioritize young people well in practice. Well, and I guess like. there's also a difference between prioritizing versus ghettoizing. Very much, and unfortunately, what we've often done, and I want to emphasize that, that this has been done out of the best of intentions uh, in so many of our churches. So it's not been done out of neglect. It's not been done out of ill will. It's out of a desire that we want to reach and engage children, teenagers, young adults well, but as you say, we've often segmented them off in their own corner of the church. If, if a church has a large enough budget, perhaps we've built them their own youth room. We've hired them their own staff member as a youth pastor. The problem is that many teenagers, they might go through an average year of their ministry calendar and hardly ever interact with adults who are outside of their age range. Well, the other issue, too, is, and I always thought this, when uh, that 
part in the service, typically very early on, came, and the children were, quote-unquote, dismissed to head off to their own church. And I thought, I wonder how many of them um, quietly wondered to themselves as they're sitting in youth service, what's going on back in the adult service that the adults don't want them to hear? Uh, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always that sense that, well, you're trying to block me from something or, or, or leave me out. And, uh, you know, children see enough of that when parents say, well, you can only go to certain types of movies. You have to be embedded at a certain time. Well, we understand that part of this is good parenting. But part of it, I think, lends, lends itself to that sense of, of being um, not only isolated, but almost and, and again, I have to concur with you at, at this level, Jake. It's not done with malintent, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that some young people, as a result, may feel as if they're being treated like they're second-class citizens. Yeah, and if I can share an example from one church that stood out in this area in our study, it's, it's First Baptist Southgate. They're located in South Los Angeles, and uh, they're a predominantly Latino congregation, uh, originally, the church was predominantly Spanish-speaking. And what happened in this congregation is the parents, the grandparents, had, had moved to the United States, spoke exclusively Spanish. Well, as they had children, as they had grandchildren, uh, those children and grandchildren were growing up in an English-speaking environment in Los Angeles and spoke almost exclusively English. So as they got a bit older and they were looking at their worship service, the church was faced with this decision of <laughs> we can keep our worship service in Spanish so that the grandparents, the parents, understand what's happening, and we could start a separate English ministry somewhere else or on the side or in another part of the building uh, in order to minister to the children, the grandchildren in the church. But as they reflected on that, they just realized that wasn't who God had called them to be as a congregation. And they reflected, if we were to do that, it's only going to drive a wedge between generations. Uh, and so, you know, bless them, the adults, the parents, the grandparents in the church said, even though this is going to cost us something and something very important to us of our language, we are willing to go about the process of integrating young people into our service of letting English be a portion of each of those services. So we saw situations when we visited this church where you had uh, a grandchild and a grandparent, and the grandparent did not understand parts of the service that were being given in English, but was willing uh, to go there and was willing to do that because of his deep love for his grandson. And the church as a whole embraced the young people in that church. So uh, just one example of what that looked like in practice, and often what it costs both generations. But yet, that sense of coming together in unity and not driving a wedge, but rather um, embracing, uh, is obviously, as you're suggesting, makes a big difference. There's another dynamic to this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is, with so much emphasis in our culture on young people and youth, and let's be honest about it, as you get older, don't you look back? Come on now. I mean, I'm... Jack Benny's age plus a number of years, and yet there's the sense that, gee, if I could only go back to my 30s, if I could go back to my, well, I won't go any further. We want to recapture that. We have a sense that there's something about vigor and vitality and energy and enthusiasm that that is inherent to to being younger. And yet with so much emphasis on such things, it seems as if they're at least in areas where the church, rather than embracing that, 
and giving credence to that and acknowledging that instead somehow demonizes it. We'll talk about that next. Our conversation today with the co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, our guest, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Our visit today with Jake Mulder, co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. One of the things that comes to mind, and I referenced this, Jake, just before the break, um, there's so much about our culture that we have a longing to want to go back and be younger if we're older. There's a lot of celebrating of uh, what it means to be young, and yet there seems to be a sense, and again, this is not in all churches, but in some churches, that we, we kind of isolate young people and we, we suggest that, well, they're not ready, they're not mature, and therefore they're not as valued in some ways, and perhaps at least that's the message that young people are receiving as the older adults. What of that notion, and, and is the church missing the boat here. Um, I mean, certainly maturity in Christ is an important thing, but are we missing the boat in some ways? Yeah, yeah, Craig, I really think we are. And two more of the core commitments that we discovered during our research uh, that characterize churches that are able to grow young really speak to that well. One of them, which I can unpack in just a second, uh, is that these churches seem to empathize with today's young people. Uh, And the other one is that these churches fuel a warm sense of community. Uh, So let me go ahead and speak to the idea of empathy first. Uh, What we discovered in these churches is that so often it's easy for a church or, or really any community to have misunderstanding, especially between generations. And in the church today, what that might look like is... Um, people pointing fingers at millennials and saying, well, millennials today, we all know they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't really want to go to church, they don't really want to follow Christ. And that's not the, that's not the default position that we saw in the churches in our study. Um, if anything, we found that, that the adults in these churches look to these young people and see that they're going through a significant journey that they're asking questions, just like all of us are, about identity, questions about who, who they are, questions about belonging, where they fit, and questions about purpose, what difference it is that they make. And like I said, all generations today are asking those questions, but for young people today, given how fast the world is changing, given different developmental realities, uh, these questions are really on the forefront of their mind. Well, not only that, but I think there's a way in which we're maybe kind of missing the point here, because oftentimes, if you talk to older adults, they'll say that, well, you know, compared to younger generations, and you can go back to the great generation that fought right. World War II, right. and, and so on, they say, well, you know, we had a sense of meaning and purpose and drive. These yep. young people today don't care about anything, and yet, if you sit down and talk with them, they're passionate about protecting the planet, dealing with global warming, saving the whales, all of these sort of, uh, for want of a better term, do-good kind of exercises that all go back to the central point of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to leave the place, the planet, better than it was when they found it or inherited it. And I I just have to wonder, if if we couch the impact of the gospel 
in terms of the ability for young people to be able to leave a mark and look at the, the absolute indelible mark left by Jesus himself, yep. I think young people could look at this and say, wow, I want to be a world changer, and you've just handed me the keys. Yeah, that's exactly what we found in our research. But the difference that you're talking about, it, it means that in our churches we have to move past assuming we know where people are at, and not just older people towards younger people. We're also advocating for we need to move past the assumptions that young people have for older people, uh, which that's empathy. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. But to move back to something that you said uh, earlier in our conversation, when we have a church that's so separated and segmented by generations and different generations never interact, Well, it's hard to practice empathy. It's hard to move to that deeper relational understanding. But, yeah, I think how you phrased it, it, that lines up very much with what we found in our research. And, you know, largely it's so sad because um, there's much that both generations can learn from each other. Older people can learn a lot from younger people, and there's an awful lot, certainly from an experiential standpoint, to be sure, that younger people can learn from older people if we just set aside some of these misconceptions and be able to actually dialogue with each other. Yeah, is it okay if I tell you a short story Please. about uh, Bill Wallace, one of the heroes in our study? So uh, we had visited a congregation that was thriving with younger generations, and we were in a room of 20-year-olds, and we asked them, what is it that you love so much about your church? And one of them mentioned something about the worship service, and a few heads nodded. Another one mentioned something about the mission trips, and a few heads nodded. But then one girl sitting over in the corner said, you know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of energy in the room. There was excitement. Every head was nodding. And uh, 20-somethings were saying, you know, I love Bill Wallace, too. He's so much of what makes our church our church. They told us how Bill uh, stops them in the hallway, asks them what's happening in their life. He knows their name. He uh, attends sporting events. He attends the dance recitals, other activities of the middle school students and high school students in the church. So uh, we just assumed and we pictured, well, Bill Wallace, he must be the 22-year-old youth pastor in that church who's just got plenty of time on his hands and goes and hangs out at kids' events. And they actually corrected us and said, no, 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 Bill, <laughs> Bill's not 22 years old. Bill is actually 76 years old. Uh, And Bill has made an intentional decision in his retirement years that he is going to invest in the young people in that church. He knows their name. He cares for them. He shows up, and they love Bill Wallace, and they love their church because of the way he invests in them. So one of the stories that we've been telling of of just something that we, we love about our research, how different generations are being connected, and it's like you said, we think that young people need the church and the church needs young people, and when the two are together, that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, that story of Bill that you share so wonderfully illustrates that this is not complicated, this is not expensive, it's not complex, because I know people listening to our conversation today, especially as we began, said, well, I know what you guys are going to talk about, and we, we, we can't afford that kind of money, we can't build that kind of program, we can't hire that kind of talent, but wait a minute, though. Yeah, there might be times and places for programs and approaches, although if you listen to this program with any frequency, you know that largely I don't buy into that. Most importantly, it's the notion that taking the time to care, the ability to do what would appear to be the inconsequential little things in life that has such a tremendous impact, 
how many of us that have the ability to be another Bill Wallace, as Jake just described, if we'd only take the time and make the effort. The book is compelling. There's much more to learn. And so if you've been captivated by our conversation today and you'd like to go deeper and learn more, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. It can not only be revitalizing to the young people in your church, but revitalizing to your church overall. The new book, by the way, newly published by Baker Books and available in bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get more information on the web by going to churchesgrowingyoung.org. That's churchesgrowingyoung.org. And our thanks to co-author Jake Mulder for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.